0: You are listening to the Sermons Podcast from The North Church in Moundsview, Minnesota.
1: For more gospel-focused resources or information about our church, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com. Our sermon text this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. That's Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. And that's on page 983 of the Blue Bibles beneath your chairs. but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray.
0: Father, let the word of your son Jesus dwell in us richly this morning. We've already experienced this as we've sung psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Thank you, Lord. And I'm asking that the word of your son would dwell richly in us also through the preaching of your word. Admonish and encourage your people by it for your glory and their joy. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Last week, we broke out in song together with Paul over the preeminent Son. And we rejoiced in the reconciliation that he provides for us. That's Colossians 1 15 through 23. It's a Christ centered song. I want you to listen to it again. I'm going to highlight some of the pronouns from that section. It's all about Jesus. He is is the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body. He is the beginning. He is preeminent. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He reconciles to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. So we stand in awe at Christ's matchless supremacy and his gracious gospel. But I'm wondering if any of you noticed how Paul ends verse 23. Look at your Bibles with me. He throws in a little note right at the end to say, yeah, that that supreme savior and that glorious gospel, I'm a minister of that. I'm a minister of that. And in our text this morning, verse 24 through 29, Paul jumps off of that little comment to defend and describe his own calling as a minister of the gospel. So what we get here is Paul quickly shifting his focus from praising the preeminent son to now talking an awful lot about himself. Did you notice that in the text as we read it? It's very Paul-centered. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking. I became a minister. The stewardship from God was given to me. For this I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is just exalted in the supremacy of Christ. He's gloried in Christ's work to reconcile sinners to himself. And now he's pausing to make a big deal about Paul. Why would he do that? Well, first I want to say this. If you're looking at the ESV, you see that Paul refers to himself as a minister. Verse 23, you also see it in verse 25. And unfortunately, our modern understanding of this term minister leads us to think, may lead us to think, Paul's talking himself up here. I'm a big, important minister, right? I'm a professional. I'm an ordained clergyman. But I actually think he's doing the exact opposite. The original Greek word there is diakonos, and we most frequently see it translated in our Bibles as servant. In other places, Paul will even refer to himself as a doulos, a slave, a slave of Christ. So I don't think Paul is attempting to elevate himself here I actually think he's lowering himself to his rightful place under the authority of Christ that he's just talked about. He's saying Christ rules and reigns, that's Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and now he's saying in his, this text this morning, I am merely his servant. And in some measure, brothers and sisters, all of you are servants of Christ. If you have repented of your sins, you've received his salvation and you've submitted to his lordship, you are Christ's servants. Listen to Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. Paul says this, Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of diaconia, service, for the work of service. Not only do the apostles and shepherds do the serving, they equip the saints to be servants. But this leads us to another question. If the gospel of Jesus is really as powerful as we've just saw that it was in 15 through 23, and if Christ has really reconciled all things to himself, does the gospel really need somebody like Paul to serve it? Or, to make this personal, is this supreme savior and this glorious gospel contingent or dependent in some way upon you and me to be ministers of it? In our text this morning, I think Paul implies that the answer is yes. Though Christ is supreme and has died once for sins, Paul reminds the Colossians and us, brothers and sisters, that there's a lot at stake if saved sinners do not see themselves as instruments of spreading the gospel and maturing the church. So I want us to walk verse by verse through this passage in order to see four characteristics of Paul's ministry. First, his experience, which is suffering. Second, his commission, which is to preach Christ. Third, his goal, which is to present everyone mature in Jesus, and fourth, his fuel, which is the indwelling strength of Christ. So let me say it a different way in a sentence. Servants of the gospel suffer the afflictions of Christ by proclaiming Christ to present everyone mature in Christ by the strength Christ supplies. And I hope that in that one sentence summary you're seeing already that maybe this text is not as Paul-centered as we originally thought. So let's dive into the minister's experience of suffering. Let's reread verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Already here we see that Paul's ministerial experience is characterized by suffering. And Paul provides sufficient evidence of this all over the New Testament. Perhaps the best example is 2 Corinthians 11 where we see Paul has suffered imprisonment beatings, near-death experiences, lashes, a stoning, shipwreck, robberies, persecutions, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst for the sake of the gospel and the church. And the particular suffering he probably has in mind in this text is imprisonment. We're going to see when we get to chapter 4 that Paul is writing this letter from prison. But even in the midst of these sufferings, Paul's ministerial experience is also characterized by joy. Joy. How can Paul rejoice in imprisonment? And likewise, how can we rejoice in suffering for the sake of the church? I'll give you two reasons I see for Paul's joy and suffering from this text. We could find a lot more in other letters, but from this text, we see first that Paul rejoiced because his suffering brought good to the church. Do you see that? Verse 24, his sufferings were for the sake of Christ's body. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says it like this, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul and we endure suffering and persecution with joy because they are the means by which we build up one another. And second, Paul rejoices in his suffering because it identifies him with Christ. Look again at verse 24. Paul is making there some identification between Christ's suffering and his suffering, Christ's suffering and the church's suffering. You remember in our text last week that Paul calls Christ the head of the body, which is the church. And when the body suffers, the head suffers. You remember Acts 9? This is the story where Paul is converted. The risen Lord Jesus reveals himself to him and he accuses Paul of persecuting him when technically Paul was persecuting who? Christians. He says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? There is a spiritual union between Christ and the church. And brothers and sisters, this is a glorious reality. We're going to get to it a little more along the way. But if we've been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, then our lives are hidden in him. And by our union with Christ, we receive every spiritual blessing from God the Father as his beloved children. And This union also means that in this life, we ought not be surprised when we receive the blows that this rebellious world intends for our Savior. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They have hated me, so they hate you. They hate you. Because we identify with Christ, we on this side of heaven will receive the afflictions that the world intends for Him. But our sufferings for the sake of the name testify to something. They confirm that we are indeed united to Jesus. When you suffer for Him, it means you are united to Him. And that's where the joy comes in. Listen to Peter's words. He says it like this He commands you, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name, you are blessed. You're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So Paul rejoices because his sufferings for the church confirm his union to Christ, yet what is remarkable about verse 24 is that Paul actually takes things one step further. Not only does he suggest that we share in Christ's sufferings, he suggests that somehow we actually fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is suggesting that in some sense Christ's afflictions are deficient and they can somehow be filled up or completed by God's human servants. Now this type of language should be causing our ears to perk up. Whoa, 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 Paul. What are you saying? Are you saying that Christ's afflictions, his atoning work, is not fully sufficient to save sinners? Is that what you're saying? And obviously the answer to that question is a decisive no. The rest of scripture doesn't allow us to talk that way. Christ's sacrificial death is absolutely sufficient to cover the sins of all who believe. Jump down with me, you don't have to go far in your Bibles, jump down to Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Paul tells us this, verse 13, you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Does that language make it sound like there's any deficiency in Christ's atoning work? No. And that's why Jesus himself when he's hanging on the cross, his final breaths, he says, it is finished. It's done. Christ's sufferings on the cross fully satisfied God's wrath for sinners. The author of Hebrews says it like this, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' single sacrificial death on the cross perfectly atones for sinners. So Paul is not saying here in verse 24, that his own personal sufferings add to the worth or effectiveness of Christ's death on Calvary. Jesus has done everything necessary to make salvation possible for sinners. But Paul does say there's something lacking. There's something still missing in Christ's sufferings which servants of the gospel can fill up. And there's only two other places that I found in Paul's letters in which he uses the language of filling up what is lacking. And I think these two places actually shed light on what Paul means here. So I wanna look at those to help us understand this complicated phrase. The first text is 1 Corinthians 16, 17. You can turn there if you want or just listen. Paul writes to the Corinthians rejoicing that three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus from the Corinthian church have come to be with him. And Paul says to the Corinthians, these men made up for your absence, or more literally translated, they filled up your lack. These three representatives of Corinth fill up the lack that the Corinthians absence, uh, of the Corinthians absence by being present in the flesh with Paul and ministering to him. Here's another example, Philippians 2.30. You can turn there too if you wanna see this language. Paul writes to the Philippians and he's honoring a man named Epaphroditus who they sent to minister to Paul's needs in prison. And in Philippians 2.30, Paul writes to the Philippians saying this, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete or fill up what was lacking in your service to me. Again, what was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul? It's their visible, bodily, presential manifestation of their concern for him. But since they couldn't be with Paul, They designate a representative, Epaphroditus, to carry out their service to Paul and fill up what was lacking in their absence. So look back at Colossians 1.24 with those texts in mind. And here's the conclusion we make. What, What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that Christ is no longer present bodily on this earth to carry out his suffering servanthood. He's raised. He's ascended into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Instead, Christ's ministry is now carried out not through his own ongoing afflictions as the head, but through the ongoing afflictions of his human representatives, the body. Paul is saying, I fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, not by atoning for sins, but to make that atonement known to the world. Right on the coattails of exalting Christ's supremacy, Paul is showing how crucial it is that Christians, servants of Christ, take up their cross of suffering to minister to others. And Paul's intention is not in any way to downplay the atoning work of Christ, but to describe the church's role in carrying on the ministry of Christ, even at the expense of our own comforts. John Piper said it this way, really briefly, I think this is nice. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation, we suffer to spread salvation. So this is the characteristic, the first characteristic we see of a gospel minister. They suffer to be a visible manifestation of Christ's continuing ministry in the world. And I wanna say this as clearly as possible. Christians, Christians, we do not serve the gospel by hunkering down, playing it safe, trying to avoid as much suffering and risk as possible until Jesus comes back. I, I, read, I read one uh, preacher who quoted Martin Luther I don't know if Martin Luther really said this, but I like the quote, said this, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if no one ever heard about it. That's good. By our union, brothers and sisters, to Jesus, we carry on this mission in the world, which necessarily involves enduring the afflictions he would have borne had he remained on the earth and done it himself. And this is Paul's joy. He rejoices to fill up what is lacking because he is now a vessel by which Christ's ministry ministers to the world in his absence. And it ought to be our joy. But let's keep reading. How how do we continue Christ's ministry in the world? What does this look like? Continue with me in verse 25. Paul says to the Colossians that he's become the church's servant according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. As God's servant, Paul is entrusted with a stewardship from God. In fact, he's entrusted with it the moment he's saved. You remember how Paul's converted, right? Saul, the zealous Jew, a persecutor of the early church, has an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. He falls before the radiance of Christ, and by his mere appearance and his words, Christ turns this harasser into a herald. And he says this to Paul, I've appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, diaconos." and witness to the things in which you have seen me. So master Jesus has entrusted his servant Paul with a deposit to manage. What is it? What is Paul's commission? What do we as servants of God now steward? This side of our conversion. Look at the end of verse 25, end of 26. The commission given by God is to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Paul describes his commission here in two ways, sort of two sides of the same coin. First, Paul is to make the word of God fully known or to fulfill God's word. He's to demonstrate how the Old Testament predictions and promises and prophecies of God have now come to pass. But Paul uses some other interesting language here, maybe language that we're a little less familiar with. So the other side of this coin is to reveal a mystery hidden for ages and generations. In other words, his commission as an apostle was not just to show how prophecy has been fulfilled, how promises have been kept, but to actually reveal things that were totally hidden before. Things that the Old Testament saints and the Old Covenant people of God would have not seen at all. Things that the Old Testament saints would not have known about that God is now unfolding and unveiling this side of Christ. So what's the mystery Paul has in mind here? Read verse 27 with me. To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is Christ in you. The mystery, Paul proclaims, which we now proclaim, is that Jesus, the Messiah, lives in, dwells in all who have put their faith in him. Do you remember how? God dwelt with the Old Testament people of God. He showed up among God's people as a pillar of fire or smoke or he stayed hidden behind a curtain in the tabernacle or the temple waiting to be visited by a high priest once a year. But the mystery revealed is that Jesus, the Messiah, has actually become the temple in whom the fullness of God dwells. And upon his departure, he actually leaves his people you and me with a helper, the Spirit of God, who will dwell in them. And then he calls his church, he calls you, the temple of God. No longer is God dwelling on the outside in some other form, he's inside of us. We become the temple. This is the revealed mystery. You, as God's new covenant people, now have God's presence inside of you. You completely identify with Christ now. As your representative. And the good news of the gospel hinges on this mysterious union with Christ. Don't overlook this. This is an important doctrine to understand. It is by this union that Christ, who knew no sin, becomes sin for us. And it is by that union that we then become in him the righteousness of God. The gospel hinges on it. What a glorious mystery this is. And by this mystery, we hope in the glory of resurrection. The text continues, the hope of glory. Because we, by our union with him, follow the already resurrected Jesus into eternal life. It's incredible news. So brothers and sisters, servants of the gospel, those united to Christ in his death and resurrection do not hoard this revealed mystery. Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach this gospel. Christ has made you anew for this. I understand that a lot could be at stake for you to proclaim Christ, your reputation in your neighborhood, maybe even persecution in your workplace. They might call you a bigot. Maybe you suffered the discomfort of having yet another conversation about Jesus with your wayward child or your unbelieving sibling or your lost parent. I'll admit the stakes are high. Paul admits the stakes are high. Suffering is certain, people will take offense, yet if we don't share about Christ, the stakes are even higher for those without him. Some of your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers may never hear about this supreme Christ who can dwell in them and reconcile them to God for eternity. At stake is their eternal joy in Jesus. But there's another piece of this revealed mystery that Paul hints at here. And it's this, look again at verse 27. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, will also dwell in believing Gentiles, non-Jews. It is also for them. You remember that the Gentiles were excluded from God's old covenant community, but now in Christ, they too can receive the riches of the glory of this mystery. As Paul will say later in Colossians 3, in Christ, there's not Greek, Jew, not circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This is no elitist gospel for one ethnicity. Ephesians 3.6 says that the glorious mystery of this gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This would have been shocking for the Jews to hear. The Israelite Messiah was gonna dwell directly in unclean gentiles so paul hints here at god's redemptive plan for every tribe and tongue and nation all nations need to hear the mystery of christ and be moved towards maturity in him and how will this happen unless some of us suffer and go to fill up what is lacking in christ's afflictions in order to minister to them and some of you in this room have already done so this makes me think of some of our global partners, Kevin and Elizabeth Crowell, who right now are on, probably on trek back across the Sub-Saharan, across Saharan desert, and they're returning from a city where they've just been a village really in Chad where they're exploring the opportunity to go and minister there among Muslim peoples. It will be costly for them to proclaim the mystery of Christ there. It will be a suffering endeavor. Pray for them. So far, we've seen the gospel first, the gospel servants first suffer the afflictions of Christ and second, they proclaim the mystery of Christ. And now in verse 28, we're gonna see their ultimate aim. What is the ultimate aim of servants of the gospel? What is your ultimate aim as you serve the church? Read verse 28 with me. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So what's the goal in this proclamation and this teaching? Is it to draw a crowd? Is it merely to see people converted or give professions of faith or say the right prayer? No, the goal extends beyond those things. The ministry of the gospel is to present everyone mature in Christ, to present people before God's throne on the final day fully ripe in the faith. Actually the Greek word for mature could be translated complete or perfect. I think mature is a little too weak here actually. I think it sets the bar a little too low. The original word sets a high standard for believers. Our job as servants of the church does not merely end when those we are serving or when we get to maturity level. When someone else says, oh yeah, that guy's a mature believer. Rather it extends beyond that. Ephesians four says it like this, we build up the body until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's no low bar. Believers are to pursue an ever increasing love for and conformity to Christ. And guess what, there's no capstone for that. It will go on into eternity, our ever increasing love and conformity to Jesus. And our goal as servants of the gospel is to help each other continue in that trajectory. And notice that this happens through verbal proclamation. It requires using language, words, even sign language, if it must be. Presenting the mystery of Christ, the gospel, necessarily requires us to share bad news, warning, and good news. Paul says it there, you see it, we proclaim Christ by warning everyone, that's negative, and positively teaching everyone. And I just wanna pause and note again How much is at stake if we do not see ourselves as instruments to build up the body? By Christ's design, brothers and sisters, he uses you to build up and edify others in the church. And if we fail to be intentional in discipleship, if we fail to risk that uncomfortable conversation of exhortation to our small group brother, if we fail to follow the Spirit's prompting to give that encouraging word, the maturity of our brothers and sisters is at stake, it's at stake. Now I've been calling you all servants of the gospel and I think there are applications in this text for all of us who've been united to Christ, not just the Pauls out there. And I want you to feel the tremendous weight of this ministerial calling, I do. I want us to feel it. It's a calling of suffering, it's a calling of bold verbal proclamation which will offend people. Its aim is not merely to convert but to bring people into ever-increasing maturity and conformity to Christ. And not only that, look at verse 28. Notice the scope. Notice the scope of who we are to minister to. We warn everyone. We teach everyone. We present everyone mature. I think there's a, a remarkable totality in Paul's mind in which he's thinking he's got an eye out to proclaim the mystery of Christ to anyone and everyone that he might come in contact with. And even to take it to the Gentiles, to spread it to the ends of the earth where Christ has not been named. This calling and commission upon our lives as servants of Christ feels overwhelming. It feels overwhelming to me. It did for Paul. Look at at verse 29. Paul calls it toil. It's laborious. It's painful. He says he struggles. The word struggle comes from the Greek word agonizome, You know what that word sounds like. Paul agonizes for the sake of the church. And the overwhelming nature of this commission reminds me of one of my favorite scenes from a C.S. Lewis book. Here's C.S. Lewis again. Get a lot of C.S. Lewis. In this fictional story, Lewis describes a new planet that God has created called Paralandra in which God has placed an innocent new race, a male and a female. However, at an early point in this new planet's history, an unwelcome creature enters Paralandra and this Satan-like intruder tries to deceive the first female of this new race and at this point you're probably thinking I've heard this story a million times that's not C.S. Lewis that's Genesis 1 through 3. However Lewis inserts a unique difference into this story and the difference is that on Paralandra a human from earth named Ransom has also been placed And he is at the scene witnessing what is about to happen as this Satan-like beast seeks to deceive this woman. And Ransom has this internal struggle because he realizes that the fate of this entire new innocent world depends on him. He knows in his heart that he has been brought here to kill this beast, yet at the same time recognizes how impossible this task is. This beast is physically much stronger than him, far more fierce And Ransom tries to convince himself that God could not possibly be depending on a weak guy like him to take action against that beast. Couldn't God just come kill this enemy himself? Just like us, Ransom wrestles with these feelings of inadequacy and weakness towards the commission to which he's been called. However, Ransom eventually has a reality check. His doubts peter out and he realizes something crucial about this situation. He remembers that God has already done something on the other planet earth that has changed the universe forever. God was born as a man in Bethlehem and suffered and died for men. And by doing so, C.S. Lewis writes, he made men members of his own body. And through men, henceforward, he would save and suffer. And then Ransom realizes this. One of the purposes for which God had done all this was to save Paralandra, not through himself, but through himself in ransom. This meant if ransom refused, the plan would miscarry. If ransom refused, the commission, the plan would miscarry. Satan would deceive the woman and Paralandra, like Earth, would fall into sinful misery. And I think Paul is making similar claims in our text this morning. Brothers and sisters, if you refuse to minister the gospel to those in your spheres of influence, a lot is at stake. Christ has purposed, he has ordained to save your family members, your friends, your neighbors, the nations, not through himself directly, but through himself in you. God has ordained both who will be saved and how they will be saved. And God has ordained that the means by which sinners get saved normally is through Christians sharing the good news your cubicle mate, Angie, or Richard, whatever his name is, her name is, she's been put there for a reason. He's been put there for a reason, a divinely appointed reason, or your crazy neighbor, Victor, across the street. Have you ever considered that perhaps he's your crazy neighbor, Victor, your neighbor, for a divinely appointed reason? And parents, those children of yours, They're not just yours to keep them fed and take cute Instagram pictures of, though do both of those things as you have opportunity. No, they are yours, a stewardship from God so that you might make the word of God fully known to them, proclaim Christ to them, warn them and teach them unto maturity in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, Christ wants you to minister even to the saints in the row right behind you. Minister the word to them. Don't miss this opportunity this morning to go through the tedious motions of meeting someone new. Christ in you may be the means by which they are encouraged or ministered to. So why am I emphasizing the weight of this calling? Am I trying to make you feel bad? Am I trying to heap heavy burdens on you? First, I'm inviting you. Better yet, Christ has invited you to participate in him, in his continuing work in the world. But I also emphasize the weight of this calling to help you feel your incredible neediness. Do you feel needy? I want you to depend not on yourself, but on God. And here's the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. Christ has not merely given you a commission. He provides for you his power. That's Paul's hope in verse 29. Look there with me. As he provides us with the fuel for gospel grinding, Paul says, for this I toil, struggling, how? With all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Things are coming full circle. He's clinging to precisely what he preaches as the core of the gospel message in verse 27. Paul is saying that the only way he can carry out his commission is by the power of Christ working in him, Christ in him, the hope of glory. Paul's union with Christ is precisely what fuels his ability to suffer for the sake of the body. And Paul talks like this in other places. You know these texts. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but Christ, the grace of God within me. Philippians two thirteen, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. So is Paul making too much of himself in this text? No, I think Paul is perfectly straddling a line. On the one side, he upholds Christ's supremacy over all things, including everyone's salvation and sanctification. And on the other side, Paul defends how critical it is that Christians suffer and toil to minister the gospel. In God's all-wise economy, it has pleased him to make you the instruments the means by which Christ continues his ministry in the world. And the tension between these two realities, Christ's supremacy and your vital ministry is resolved in the mystery of your union in Christ. You, brothers and sisters, are commissioned to do the work. You're commissioned to do the suffering. You're commissioned to labor. You're commissioned to make Christ known in the world. But he is in you. He is in you providing you with the energy and strength to carry on in these labors. In the end, it is not you, but it is the grace of God within you. Let me pray. Father God, use this text to spur us on by the strength you supply to the task to which you've commissioned us. And may many, Lord, Near and far, come to know and love and be mature in Christ as a result of your faithful work in us as we labor in neediness by the power of your Spirit. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Sermons Podcast from The North Church. For more information about our church or resources to help you deepen your walk with Christ, please visit us at thenorthchurch.com.